Hi, and welcome to the second episode of the SIS Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon. The lineup for today's show will be joined by Tyler Kepner, national baseball writer from the New York Times. He's the author of a new book about pitching, and we'll talk about the intersection of pitching and defense, as well as some of the top pitches in the game. My colleague Andrew Kine will join us in a segment we'll call Under Review, where we'll talk about some of the latest research and work we're doing, go through some leaderboards. We'll ask and answer a few questions as well. And then we'll close with the ridiculous numbers of the day. We like to start the show with a quick take on something notable from the first couple of weeks in the majors. The Padres made two dramatic moves this past offseason, first signing Manny Machado to a $300 million contract and putting 20-year-old top prospect shortstop Fernando Tatis Jr. on their major league roster on opening day. In doing so, they may have created baseball's new defensive dynamic duo. Together, they've already combined for 10 runs saved. Machado returned to his best position, third base, after struggling at shortstop in 2018. He has five runs saved in 2019 and looks a lot more like his old self so far. Machado has posted as many as 35 defensive runs saved in a season. His norm is in the low teens. When he's right, Machado shows great range, both going down the line and in the hole. He makes a lot of great plays, and he makes very few mistakes. Tatis has been very good. He has five runs saved in 2019. He's gotten to balls in the shortstop third base hole that others don't get. That's notable because it's something that he didn't do last season at the minor league level. It was his biggest weakness. The Padres have positioned him well, giving him a chance to make those plays. The Padres' infield defense was good last year, but this season it may be great. They have one of the game's best scoopers of throws, Eric Hosmer, at first base, so he should help both Tatis and Machado a lot. And here's some perspective on just how good Tatis and Machado are already. We mentioned the 10 defensive runs saved. No other team has more than five from the left side of the infield. If the Padres contend in 2019, the bats of Machado and Tatis figure to play a big role. This is a team on the rise, albeit one with a no-name pitching staff. The expectation may have been to contend in 2020, but perhaps they can move up the clock a year. And the key to that may be in just how well they play in the field. transition from a team with a lot of unknown pitching to the writer of a book about great pitching. Tyler Kepner is the author of the new book, K, The History of Baseball in 10 Pitches. He's the national baseball writer for the New York Times. We have a good relationship with the Times, and we bring Tyler on now. And our first question is a three-parter. Who are the most interesting pitchers to talk to for the book? Give me an old-timer, a recently retired, and a current pitcher, and tell us why. Well, um, there were so many, Mark, who, who were great, but um, when you ask that question, the, the first guy I think of from the old, old timers was Carl Erskine from the Brooklyn Dodgers. He was just tremendous. He had stories about meeting Three Finger Brown at the team hotel when he was a, a minor leaguer and, and getting to see his gnarled hand and learning how it gave him such a great uh, grip on the, on the curveball. That was really cool just to get to go back in time um, like that to talk to someone who knew kind of one of these ghosts of, uh, you know, ghosts of the game. Um, and you know, he told, he told, he told stories about the early days of baseball, um, in, in terms of like the curveball and, uh, wh- whether or whether or not it actually existed, you know, whether it was a thing that physics allowed to happen, um, you know, how that was like still a question back in the fifties when he was pitching, he talked about preacher row and how he, how he threw spitballs and everything. Uh, he talked about warming up in the, in the, in the 
uh, bullpen and at the polo grounds, um, you know, and bouncing this curveball on the dirt. And then uh, that was why the Dodgers went with uh, went with Ralph Franca instead of him to give up the famous home run, uh, the, the shot heard around the world, 51. So he was just a, a treasure trove of, 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 uh, of great stories and just a really, really nice, uh, nice man as well. Um, and uh, as far as recently retired, I mean, I, I learned more from Mike Messina than, than any any pitcher I ever covered in, in 12 years as a beat writer um, or ever since as a national writer. Um, you know, we had a, a two-hour lunch up there in Montoursville, Pennsylvania, just going over every pitch and, and his philosophies about uh, the craft and the game. Um, he was just terrific, um, as, as, as I hoped he would expect him to be. He's, he's great. Um, and of the current guys, um, you know, there, there are a lot of good ones, but the one who jumps out at me is I really, I really wanted to go deep on, on um, the pitch that won the World Series for the Cubs, um, just because it had been such an anticipated moment um, for so long, 108 years. Um, and it happened to be Mike Montgomery, kind of a uh, swingman kind of guy in the bullpen, um, who came up, you know, to throw curveballs to get, to get uh, Michael Martinez out there in the bottom of the ninth for the only save, the first save of his career. Um, and I had never talked to Mike and I talked to him that off season for a long time, the phone probably an hour and a half, two hours. And he was just tremendous. Just talking about, um, you know, step by step, how he developed that pitch over the years and through all the trades he'd had and all the ups and downs, how he found himself in that moment. Um, I felt there was kind of a, I don't know, just some sort of poignant that it would be um, a somewhat, uh, obscure guy who, who got to be on the mound for for that that magic moment. So he could have been any 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 kind of guy, and he turned out to be a really really um, insightful, uh, interesting dude. He goes from Mordecai Brown to Mike Montgomery, and you wonder now what guys like Mordecai Brown and Carl Erskine might think of things like TrackMan and Rapsodo and some of these new technologies that are evaluating pitchers. You just read about Wes Johnson, the Twins pitching coach. Did you talk to? Uh, pitchers about how their pitches were evaluated over time like how did they know that they were throwing the ball well back in the 1950s 60s 70s uh, as compared to now well I think a lot of it was was maybe a little a little more intuition let's say than a lot of pitchers might have now um, I think in general the uh, all the uh, data and the equipment is tremendous because it can point out exactly what you're you're doing right or doing wrong it can give you um, areas to emphasize in your uh in your preparation you know that maybe you didn't even know about like if you didn't know that your pitch you know this one particular pitch uh had an incredible spin rate let's say maybe you wouldn't work as hard on, on developing it um into a into a weapon or you might you know be concentrating on the wrong things um but you know i think back then it was a little more intuition because a lot of these guys just had to figure it out on their own i mean the, the coaching uh was not nearly as as sophisticated um, or even as widespread. I mean, often I was surprised to learn that often, most times, I guess there was individual minor league teams did not have pitching coaches. It was just, uh, you know, one sort of roving instructor who would, who would go through the farm system and come through town every month or so and, and, uh, talk to the kids and then, all right, guys, go get them. And then I'll see you in a month or, you know, whatever. Um, and they were largely left to their own devices. And so that left the time for a lot of, uh, experimentation on their own and, and, and everything, but also just a lot of uh, uncertainty as to what was really working and what wasn't. I mean, Steve Rogers used to talk about uh, Cal McLish, who was actually a very well-regarded pitching coach, um, but, you know, he would just tell them, you know, get out front, son, and, and get whippy. 
And uh, he's like, well, what do I mean? You know, get out in front and get whippy. Like, that's the only thing this coach is telling me. Um, and there was some wisdom to it because you do need a whipping action at the end of your arm, um, you know, at the end of your, your wrist and hand um, to give the pitch a little life. But, like, he didn't exactly have a whole lot else besides that. I mean, Andy Pettit would talk about, you know, Hoyt Wilhelm um, coaching him in the minor leagues and just saying, uh, just keep just keep turning to the right, Pettit. Just keep turning them to the right, meaning, like, just keep sending them back to their own dugout. I was like, okay, like, you know, I'll just I'll just try to keep getting them out. You know, like, it wasn't a whole lot of, uh, sophisticated instruction like you can get now from all those uh, all that data. I want to tie this into something that we have. We have a command rating that we uh, showed off when we were on MLB Network last year uh, that showed which pitchers are best able to hit the mitt, so to speak. And I remember Kyle Hendricks was one of the guys that topped the list uh, in terms of frequently being able to hit his catcher right on the target. Who are some of the guys that you're most impressed with in terms of command of a pitch? Well, one guy who's always impressed me with his command is is, is Madison Bumgarner. Um, I wanted to talk to him for the fastball chapter because I'm just intrigued by sort of how much conviction he has with that pitch. And, and maybe it's more conviction than than command exactly. But Bumgarner just believes in his in his fastball so well, and he's just fearless in the way he uses it. Um, not the not the hardest fastball um, in the game, or or even one of them, but I, I, I wanted to bring into focus the the um, you know the last out of Game Seven of the of the fourteen World Series when when a home run by Sal Perez would win the World Series for the for the Royals um, and an out would win it for the Giants. What they call a golden pitch and saber. Um, Montgomery actually had a the same situation in, in sixteen, but. Um, you know the one the one in the Giants Royals case was maybe a little more heightened because it was a power hitter at the plate, and Perez had had hit a home run off Bumgarner earlier in the series. In fact, that the only run he's ever given up in the World Series was a, a, a solo homer to Sal Perez. So here he comes with Gordon on third. Um, all of a sudden, after the the error in the outfield, with two outs in the ninth, and Bumgarner went with only fastballs in that moment. And so we talked, we dug in. Um, pretty deep on, on his, his thinking and his rationale, that whole at-bat, um, you know, and, and, and why he didn't throw anything else. Obviously, he's a guy in third. He don't want to bounce something or have something, um, a pitch get by the catcher and, 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 and bring home the tying run. But it was mainly just about his belief that Perez was going to be anxious in that spot, and he's sort of naturally in swing mode anyway. Um, so he could he felt really comfortable climbing the ladder there. But, um, you know, if you miss in, in that spot, you know, if you if you – trying to throw up and you miss by, uh, you know, six inches or, 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 or so, um, that could be the difference between winning the World Series and losing it right there because you're, you're in a dangerous territory. But but it was just interesting to me how he had such um, conviction that he was going to command that pitch and, and you know, put it exactly where he wanted it um, in a dangerous spot and get away with it. And, uh, and he did. So I don't know where he ranks um, – has ranked over the years on, on that metric, but I just, I felt like that was a good example anyway of what um, superior command uh, can do. A good catcher makes a good pitcher too. And Madison's got a great one. Buster Posey. Did you talk to uh, pitchers at all about the work of their catchers and the pitch framing that their catchers did? Um, Not exactly so much framing. No, Um, that really wasn't much of an emphasis um, for me in terms of like, you know, who, who can steal strikes better better than others? I know that's been uh, obviously a huge part of, of catching metrics. I did a big story on 
on catching um, late in spring training about how like last year was, I think the worst year offensively for catchers ever. Um, but you know, a lot of coaches and, and managers, evaluators would say that, you know, it's, it's just because um, or largely because the defensive metrics have gotten so uh, advanced and they know that a defensive catcher can be such a valuable weapon for a team that, more than ever they're prioritizing defense and framing at that position and if you can hit it's um it's very secondary to your value there so um you know a team like the red sox was was perfectly happy having catchers who who hardly contributed offensively um last year but they won the world series and and their catchers were really really good at framing and hey you have a guy like jeff mathis who who you know doesn't contribute much with the bat and is older but you know was able to sign a two-year contract um you know, with Texas as they try to, you know, transition from a veteran team eventually to a, a new ballpark and a younger staff, they felt it was good to have a guy like Mathis there and, and framing, you know, got him two extra years um, where he might not have had that in the past because even though he was good defensively, he might have just been labeled as a, you know, a 199 hitter. And, and, and so it's really um, been a, an important, you know, revelation uh, in the current game and serving also to sort of bring down the, offensive uh, uh, worth of, of, of catchers just because their defense is so important. Two more questions for Tyler Kepner. Uh, rapid fire kind of one. Pick your three favorite pitches in baseball today. There's so, <laughs> there's so many. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I like thinking of the full arsenal of sure. guys, but um, I mean the, you know, the seeing Kershaw again the other night, um, last night coming back, uh, seeing that curveball again was, 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 was really pretty. Um, I mean, I, you know, you see some of the action on, on some guys, uh, sinkers now, which is just ridiculous. Um, you know, Jose Alvarado on, on, on the Rays is, is, is recently gotten to be fun to watch with the way that the two seamer moves. I'm still sort of, you know, I still sort of think of the classics, like I, I'll, I'll take the Max Scherzer, uh, slider and just, you know, that turbo action, um, the, the, the the I'll say the Max Scherzer slider. I still go back to the Clayton Ker, Kershaw uh, curve, and <clears throat> I kind of give you a good one, kind of an obscure one. Um, there's, uh, let me think. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe just because I I, I I sort of default to some of the old the older guys, but um, I still love watching Cole Hamels, you know, throw that change up and, and just baffle guys like that. I mean, those are th- three guys who've been doing it for a long time, um, but you know, I, yeah, a fat, a slider, curveball, change up. That's a pretty good list. They, they've, they've, they've got a, a lot of accomplishments with those guys. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> they've, they've proven it over time. All right, last question. We're a defense company largely. Defensive run save, shifting that, all the different things related to that. You, people may not know this, are a baseball card maven, so to speak. You are very uh, into them. Let's say we paired up and we created defensive-based baseball cards. What should they look like? Well, I think they should. They ought to look like the '73 tops, where you had a little a little guy in silhouette um, in, in the corner, sort of like uh, you know in his defensive position. Um, I kind of like that. I, I, I kind of like like the uh, how that sort of emphasized defense a little bit. So maybe we make like, go with a retro set with a, a little '73 tops design. And uh, of course, we, we could we could we could o- we could only spotlight um, defensive plays on, on the photos. Um, so. You know that would be fun, and I always like the defense, the, the the cards that'll have a defensive play because sometimes you can actually go back and see like, oh well, there was only one play at the plate, 
you know, involving, uh, in, involving, uh, you know, Mike Fitzgerald and, and Wally Backman. So, you know, it must've been this exact play, um, <laughs> you know, something like that. So um, I kind of like that where you can go back and cross reference it. But what I would like on the back of the cards is maybe instead of just the stats or whatever, I mean, you could have some stats, um, maybe an explanation of the player for about his uh, equipment, like his glove, you know, how long has he had the glove? Cause I, you know, sometimes that's fun. Like hey, guys, this guy's had the glove since 2006 and you know, he's been using it every day or um, just sort of a, a description of a, like a photo of the glove or like how it's been broken in and maybe like a tip for a tip for like a pro tip for either how you play the position or, or how you break in your equipment. And uh, you know, and then some stats on the stats on the glove. That's what I'd like to hear. <laughs> Let's go into business. Sounds good. The book is Carrie, right, A History of Baseball in 10 Pitches. It's the number one baseball book on Amazon.com. You can find it there or wherever books are sold. Tyler Kepner, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot, Mark. This next segment under review. My colleague Andrew Kine joins us, and we're going to talk about takeaways from the first couple of weeks, leaderboards, and answer a couple of uh, reader mail or listener mail questions. And we'll start with takeaways from the first two weeks of the season. And we had talked about this, I think, on the first show. Two teams with significant shift increases this season so far. Not who you would expect, although if you think about it, it makes sense. One is the Marlins. The Marlins were shifting the Rockies 20, 25 times a game in the first series of the season. They've scaled back from that a little bit, but they've still been uh, pretty aggressive when it comes to defensive shifting. They are the leader right now. Them And the Baltimore Orioles are also an aggressive team when it comes to defensive shifting, which makes sense when you think about the fact that their general manager, Mike Elias, is formerly with the Houston Astros brings over a philosophy and uh, brings over uh, kind of a guru of analytics in Sig Madoff, uh, and they impart this new philosophy. And what they're doing really aggressively is they're shifting right-handed hitters like nobody else. They're shifting like half of the ones that come up. They are taking chances. They're playing admittedly with a shortstop that was a Rule 5 pick. And I think that they're willing to take this season as somewhat of an experiment to see if things like going aggressive against right-handed hitters can work a little bit. Uh, and thus far, the results are kind of mixed uh, for both teams. Uh, they're not among the shifting leaders uh, in terms of shift run save by any means. But I think it's something that you really have to keep an eye on over the course of the season. Andrew, what's your biggest takeaway from the first couple of weeks? My biggest takeaway has to do with the Mariners and, and what they're doing and how they're winning in spite of their defense. Uh, Entering this week, they were already at minus 28 defensive runs saved, which was the worst in baseball. They had the most defensive misplays and errors in baseball, and yet they were 13 to 5. Uh, and minus 28. Yeah, it's it's very significant, and, and we kind of saw that last year with the Phillies, and we saw how their poor defense caught up to them. Uh, the Mariners, you know, are obviously hitting very well to make up for that lack of run prevention, but I'll be interested to see what happens. Uh, if, if their offense starts to regress a little bit, but their defense stays where it is. The biggest culprit for them is Omar Nervais? Right, yeah. Behind the plate, he's he's cost them, I believe, six or seven runs. Also, Domingo Santana has, has cost them in the outfield a little bit. It's funny, when Santana was on the Brewers, his defensive numbers uh, weren't that bad. They were actually uh, all right. Nervais, a replacement for Mike Zanina, that's a little bit of a challenge. Uh, he's known for, Zanina's known for framing. 
Narvaez is known for taking pitches out of the strike zone. We go from the worst team in defensive run saved. I want to mention the best team. I want to give the shout out to the Giants, who lead the majors with 30 defensive runs saved. Two notable names there. Steven Duggar leads the majors with seven. He's a great outfielder for Oracle Park, not AT&T anymore, uh, because he can really go back and get the ball. He can chase a lot of balls down. There are going to be a lot of deep fly balls get into that ballpark where there's going to be room to make catches that are going to be of high value. He's able to do that. Kevin Pilar is a good uh, addition there. It allows Duggar to move to right. Uh, also want to point out that Buster Posey has looked maybe not good at the plate, but very strong behind the plate in terms of pitch framing, throwing guys out. Staff ERA has been very good with him uh, behind the plate so far. So we go from team leader to position leader. And I'm looking at the defensive run save leaderboard. We mentioned Steven Duggar in the outfield with seven, uh, Acuna with six, Ronald Acuna off to a good start. The numbers are really kind of dicey at this point in the season, so we're looking for clues more than we're looking for absolutes, guys that might be off to good starts, guys that look good, guys that have home run robberies tend to fare very well here in the early going. Aaron Judge, Lorenzo Cain, Mike Trout among the guys with five. Uh, Martin Maldonado's off to a good start with four, uh, which we said behind the plate, he's the best defensive catcher in baseball. Rookie bats, Matt Chapman, usual suspects. I do want to point out Ramon Laureano. He's already got four outfield arm runs saved. Might have the best arm in the major leagues uh, in terms of base runner deterrence. In terms of good fielding plays, remember that we have uh, people who chart good fielding plays and defensive misplays. Your leader's early there. Uh, I think it's the one to point out is Carlos Correa, who had an off-year defensively last season. He's the leader at shortstop. Joe Panic at second base mentioned the Giants were doing well. Matt Chapman at third. Puig in the outfield, uh, and Anthony Rizzo at first base. All right, let's talk four-man outfields. Andrew Kahn's done the work on that. We brought that up before the season started. We uh, update it with the start of the season. Sure. So we've, we've charted 18 uh, four-man outfields on batted balls so far, and, and that's actually comprised – of just two teams, one being the Tampa Bay Rays, who I think everyone might have expected to increase their four-man outfield usage given what they did in spring training, uh, but also the Cincinnati Reds. The Reds have, have done it 10 times. They've done it against Matt Carpenter, who we talked about on the last podcast as, as a, a possible candidate, as someone who uh, would would fit the strategy. Uh, he has Monty Grandal, Travis Shaw, Curtis Granderson, uh, and the Rays did it against Brandon Belt of the Giants and Justin Smoke of the Blue Jays. Uh, those batters are actually six for 18 against the four-man outfield, which uh, does not sound it's great not so far. Uh, however, you know, it, I did see it one of the times that the Reds tried it on Grandal. He actually hit a ball uh, down into the corner, and they were able to hold him to a single, where if it was the traditional alignment, it probably would have been a double. So you see that, and then Grindel actually also tried to bunt on them, which is something that we talked a little bit about on the last podcast, and it didn't work. He he bunted it, tried to bunt it down the third base line, but the pitcher fielded it cleanly. Um, so you know we're we're still going to see where it goes in terms of its effectiveness, uh, but it's it's something that even though it's only been done by these two teams so far. It's already almost halfway to the number that we saw last year, so it's definitely increasing. We're definitely going to see more of those over the course of the season. I'll be curious if it's done, uh, A, by the Rays, and B, on Brindal, and and C, on Brindal, uh, who mm-hmm. is 
a notorious ground ball uh, puller. Uh, we had some questions. We had a couple of uh, people write in to our Twitter with questions. Sportsinfo underscore SIS if you want to hit us up on Twitter. Matt Trueblood writes in, now that we have data on defensive positioning in the outfield, have you studied whether there's a connection between how deep a guy plays and how he performs on deep and or shallow balls? Any surprising individual performances? Yeah, so it's it's a good question, and we've we've done a little bit of research into that, and, and I looked into it a little bit yesterday as well when when we got the question. But one of the things that we do for DRS is, is we break out plays saved into shallow, medium, and deep buckets. And as Matt mentioned in his question, we can now look at defensive positioning in the outfield. Uh, so comparing those two things for players with a large enough sample, there's there's a pretty strong correlation between a player's average depth and his plays saved in those buckets. So if a player's average depth is shallow, he tends to save more plays on shallow balls and fewer plays on deep balls. And the opposite is true if, if the player's average depth is deep. Uh, the break-even point, if, if you want to call it that, or, or where play saved crosses zero essentially is, is right around the average depth for all three outfield spots. Uh, in the corners, it's, it's around 290 to 295 feet. In center, it's around 315 to 320 feet. So, for example, if, if you play deeper than 320 feet in center field, you're likely to save more plays on deep balls and fewer plays on shallow balls. And, and I think that's all pretty intuitive. Uh, now, when we start to convert play saved into run saved, our public DRS system, which doesn't consider a fielder's starting positioning, uh, has something of a, a natural bias in favor of defending deep balls well since deeply hit balls have a higher run value associated with them. Uh, so in terms of individual performances, I think that Billy Hamilton is, is a pretty interesting one because the Reds positioned him pretty shallow when he was with Cincinnati. And he's, he's always excelled on those shallow balls, but not so much on deep balls. And his positioning likely had something to do with that. Uh, but again, with the, the run values and essentially biasing in, in favor of deep balls, his lesser performance on those balls uh, probably brought his DRS down maybe more than we might have expected given his defensive reputation. And there the Royals have moved him back. Right. So, so it would be interesting to see if, if his DRS uh, in the public system without considering his positioning is, is improved. Second question from Joshua Hausen. How do defensive metrics weigh a play like what happened in the April 11th game between Toronto and Boston where Randall Richard was camped under a fly ball but missed it because Socrates Brito ran into him? Do either of them get hurt by that? Both? Yeah, so we went back and, and we watched this play, and, and Mookie Betts hits a pretty routine fly ball to center field. Randall Gritchick is, is camped under it, but Brito drifts over, and, and although he didn't actually make contact with him, he distracted him enough to the point where Gritchick let it bounce off his, his glove and he dropped it. Uh, so Gritchick was charged with an error, and in a situation like that, DRS can actually penalize both of them. So Gritchick bears the majority of, of that penalty having been charged with the air and getting his glove on the ball without any extraordinary effort. Uh, so he's penalized for not being able to convert a routine play. But additionally, we have our defensive misplay system, which has run values associated with some of the various types of misplays, one being uh, cutting off a better positioned fielder. So that applies when a fielder is, is literally cutting in front of a guy who had a better chance of making a play. But it also applies if, if he's just interfering with another fielder's ability to make the play. So on, on a play like that, Brio can actually lose some credit for essentially disrupting the play. And he, and he does. Yeah. 
All right, if you want to send us a question, sportsinfo underscore SIS on Twitter. Love to hear from you. Love to hear what you think about the podcast. We'll be doing more of these over the course of this season. Let's go to the ridiculous number of the day. All right, what do you got? Sure. So since the start of 2018, Cody Bellinger is batting 360 on grounders and short liners against the shift. And interestingly, it was 360 last year when he went 50 for 139 and 360 exactly this year as he's 9 for 25. Lefties have only hit about 250 on grounders and short liners against the shift since the start of last season. So I think that that hitting 360 is, is pretty ridiculous and something that, that we might have to look into a little bit more. If you watch him and you've watched this strong start to the season, one thing that he can do is he can take the ball into that kind of that wedge between second base and where the shortstop normally plays and sneak it through regardless of, of whether there's a guy there or not to compensate for the defensive shift that's played against him. He's been outstanding against that uh, both last season and now he's carried that over into this season. All right, we close the show with uh, the ridiculous number, my ridiculous number. All the talk from, with uh, Tyler about pitching got me to wondering about unheralded dominance and guys with dominant pitches that you might not think of. And I went looking through our pitch data and we keep this stuff. You can, uh, powers a lot of fan graphs. I should point uh, that out. I was looking, is there someone for whom I could say someone is like six for 100? I wanted single digit for triple digits since the start of last season. There's only one guy. That would be the closer for the Giants, Will Smith. Since the start of last season, opponents are nine for 104 against his slider. He's throwing it for a strike 73% of the time. Hitters miss on almost half their swings against it. He only throws his fastball 93, which is nothing for a closer, but he's dominant because he has one of the most unknown weapons in the game. Thank you for listening to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you'd like to give us feedback, please review us on iTunes or email us at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com. I'm Mark Simon. For Andrew Kine and Tyler Kepner, we'll catch you down the road. 